We're just looking at chapter 2 and particularly verse 2, which uh, we read just a a few seconds ago. Uh, If you want a title for the sermon, it's probably uh, best to sum it up uh, in the expectation of growth. And I'm looking at this, uh, trying to apply this teaching that Peter was given, uh, that he was giving to, to the Christian church. Uh, throughout the ages and apply it to us today and it made me think that when we think of growth uh, there are many things that uh, are very endearing to us as we consider maybe how our children grew up over the years and maybe you've gone into a house and there on the wall in the kitchen uh, there's a series of marks on on a doorpost and with names and dates and the measurement of the, the child and uh, you see that they have grown up and and uh, they've progressed as they've uh, left childhood and gone into, well, maybe they stopped in their teenage years because it became embarrassing. But certainly in the younger years, you would see that uh, record of their growth. And I remember my own children uh, longing to see progress and as they would grow taller. And of course, uh, as is often the case, Uh, they often pass us. And so my son, Angus Peter, he passed me some years ago, and it was something of great joy to him. Um, And I was very pleased for him because I remember how I wanted to pass my father's height. And when I did, I was very pleased. Well, I've realized, too, that in terms of growth, it's not limited to children in early years wanting to grow up and taller and taller. I, I have that still. And they remain, it remains in me, this desire to, to keep on growing. And, but it's in a different uh, arena, so to speak, because I'm looking for a correlation of growth between experience and wisdom. So as I look over uh, my life experience, I'm hoping that I've seen growth uh, in wisdom at, uh, at different stages. And this passage of God's word develops the theme of growth in a very particular sense. And there's a link to the end of chapter 1. We read from verse 22 onwards, and Peter begins his second chapter with a a linking word, so or therefore, and is particularly linked to verses 22 to 25 of of chapter 1. And the theme of that passage is, is a focus on the behavior and the life of the person who's following Jesus. Peter uses a much derided term. He says, born again. And we should not be ashamed or afraid to use this term. It's a biblical term. Here it is in the scripture. And it's simply a description of something that is a new life beginning, a new creation, a new start. And in such terms, Peter is presenting this to his readers And he's underlined that the faith in Jesus that they have is not just a a mere intellectual assent, but it's a a radical life-changing experience. I remember my late mother, when she told me that when she first placed her hope and trust in Jesus Christ, something just as radical as I've been uh, expressing there occurred in her. She was working in Edinburgh. And so... uh, as she walked to work the day after she experienced this new creation uh, experience in her life, coming to faith in Jesus, the, the next morning she thought that God's creation 
had somehow taken on new beauty that she hadn't appreciated before. The birds were singing clearer. It, the, the trees seemed to be greener. The, the joy that she felt in her was deeper. And not only that, she imagined that those that she passed in the street or traveled with on the bus, she imagined that they were able to see her uh, and that she had a change in her life. It felt so complete. Uh, and she thought it was visible. It's not so unusual to show this when someone comes to faith in Jesus. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we can expect to see changes. We should see changes. And we can hope that the, this evidence will be there for the, the human eye to see and our consciences to, to pick up on. That it's the work of God that is, he's working in us. And as Paul says to the Philippians, he, he's beginning a good work in us and he'll bring it to completion. Now, Peter writes to those who 2,000 years before my mother, before our time, they, they had put their hope in Jesus. And you see, when this happens, God places a hope or a joy that's inexpressible and a peace that this world can simply never provide. I wonder if you've been considering uh, people that were influential in your life when, when you saw in them something of that joy, that peace that they had in Jesus Christ. And I think unless we're the coldest of people, this blessing will be reflected in us and maybe even in, in our expressions. But before you, you say, but uh, Angus, are, are you saying that we should walk around with a, a constant grin on our faces? Uh, that would be false. That would be, that, that, that would be unnatural. Well, of course, that's not what what Peter is suggesting in this passage and what I'm suggesting as the expression of, of, of our experience of faith. Well, I'm, I'm saying it's not that we walk with a concrete set smile in our faces like some beauty pageant winner or a Botox Hollywood actor. It, but it does mean that in the darkest hour, we enjoy a, an inner stillness. We, we have something that is calm, that brings us to a place of rest, of having peace, of being still and knowing that Jesus is God. And we may ask the question this evening, how does this change come about? Is it by contact with God's wonderful creation? Is it by going up into the mountains and the hills and experiencing the wonder of creation? Is it by you know, pre-pandemic traveling around the world and experiencing different cultures and saying, well, I need to broaden my exposure to the cultures of the world and the peoples of the world. And through that, I will, I will have this peace and this joy. Is it by waiting until we're like retired and saying, well, I, I'm 70 years old. I'm 75 years old, whatever the age would be. And now's the point I'm going to take this. God stuff seriously, I'm going to take this step in investigating because I've lived my life and now I'm going to look into religion. Well, obviously, the answer is a resounding no. Uh, Peter is teaching us about a radical change that is brought about through the word of God, through the Bible, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying those truths to us. And this very book that we, we open up before us and read it is key to this spiritual change, this radical change 
is through God's word. He makes us right with God by enlightening our minds, opening our eyes, giving us sight to the truth of who he is, to the truth of our desperate need of salvation in Jesus. But it's not just stopping there. It's not just that moment that maybe we could say we were converted. It is also a change that is ongoing. And this is where Peter is developing his theme. He's talking about the faith that we have in Jesus Christ has been an ongoing thing. And there are certain responsibilities that the believer has. So let's look at them briefly this evening. He talks about peeling off superfluous things. So Peter's so, or therefore, leads him to instruct the the Christians to be active. And it extends to us because this letter has become a sort of general letter to the church. It's an extension to our time, to, to our moment. So just as the writer to the Hebrews was giving a picture of an athlete who who was running a race but had to strip off all the the things that would impede them and, and slow their progress as they would run the race. So Peter is using a similar imperative or a command. And it, it's more than a direction. It's more than Peter saying, oh, by the way, you may feel that this is helpful to you if you do these things. No, it is a command. It is stronger than a suggestion. And it it is that because there are implications that are so serious. In the Bible, we do see imperatives used as suggestions or directions, and and they have their different places. But there are others that are strong commands. This is one of the latter. This is a strong command. And then if it is a command to us, it becomes our personal responsibility to, to be obedient, to follow that command. Uh, And a good number of years ago, uh, there was a law that started, uh, you had to wear a seatbelt in your car. Now, that was fine when you were in the front seat, because many cars had front seat uh, seat belts. But the passengers in the back, they didn't always have a seatbelt. So many people were trying to get seatbelts fitted to the back of their cars when it became law to wear a seatbelt in the rear of the car. It was a law. Yet some people were choosing to go without wearing the seatbelt. They're saying, well, I have liberty. I, no one is going to tell me what I have to do. I, I have to, I'm going to show my rebellion against this law. And I'm going to show that I have liberty to, to live my life. And I'm going to drive my car without a seatbelt. Now, at the end of the day, certain consequences would happen to come around. You could go without a seatbelt. And you're likely it's likely that you'd be caught by police, and especially more now with the cameras that they have. And they would fine you, they'd give you a fixed penalty, and there would be no appeal because the evidence would be there, and it's a law, it's been broken. It's it's your responsibility. It's the action that you took and the fine that is to be paid. Fine, that's, that's, that's one consequence. Another way would be to go without a seatbelt, and maybe you're involved in an accident that causes injury either to self or to others. Again, there's responsibility and a price to be paid uh, personally and by the health services, by the state, by the taxpayers who have to uh, fund the the health care of a person in an accident. Uh, Or there could be a third option. You could go without a seatbelt and just hope to escape all the police and avoid all accidents 
and live in this unreal world. But it would be your responsibility. It would be at your own risk and it would be your own concern. But the question would be, is it worth it? So there is a law here. There's a command. There's a directive that Peter is saying. And it's attached to God's word. It's attached to how we have a personal responsibility. And this word of God was preached to them. They knew it. And Peter makes reference to to Isaiah when he recites uh, in verses 24 and 25 a a description of that word, the the eternal nature, the everlasting nature of that word, the permanent uh, condition of God's word. And it's, it's one of these things that maybe we've passed by. But we have to realize that God's word is to be obeyed. It is to be followed. But you might be asking, well, Angus, why? why, You can say that, but where do you get that from? Well, the simple answer to that is that it is the, the, the only writing that has the authority of God. It is the only writing that comes with God's inspiration, that God has given it to us, that is, in essence, not the letter that Peter writes. It is the the book of the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's letter to us, directed to us. And deep within that teaching, we find how we are to relate not only to God, but to one another. And Peter is writing about relationships here between the believers. And he's he's already spoken of an earnest and sincere love. For, for the brothers and sisters, that they are to love one another deeply, sincerely, from the heart. And to do this, to show sincerity, to, to love from the heart, to, to care for our brothers and sisters in relationship in the church of Jesus Christ, we must peel off the sins that, that harm or destroy relationships. So Peter, stresses what these things can be so maybe he's emphasizing that in this particular context these sins that are found in typically in in human beings and in groups that they are prevalent and they have to be dealt with and i know that this applies not just to one location it applies to every place because we are all very similar no matter where we are in the world, even culturally, there, there can be differences. There certainly are language differences. There are, are things that influence how we live. But these things are common to, to groups of people wherever they are. It's so easy. Notice the three alls that Peter stresses. All malice or hateful feelings. Now he says, put this off, peel it off. So it, it's got to be thrown away. I, you know, when you peel something off, you don't tend to keep it. You, you get rid of it. So peel this all malice, hateful th- feelings for towards others. It's so contrary to, to Christian testimony. And it's so different to Jesus's example. And so surely when we bear his name, we want to follow his example. So if we are conscious of having feelings of a deep resentment or or even hatred towards others. Ask God for grace to peel off the, those things 
get rid of all malice. But the second thing that he says is get rid of all deceit, hypocrisy and envy. So it's like a development, isn't it? It's in, there's insincerity, just what he was saying beforehand about being sincere and loving our Christian brothers and sisters. Here he's saying, well, in this process, you have to peel off any insincerity or any two-facedness. You know, that's something that, that riled Jesus. He really reacted strongly. He condemned some people for being fakes, for being whitewashed graves, basically. Now, the word that we, we, we have uh, uh, before is like hypocrisy. You, you will be very familiar with it comes from the Greek language. Its root is found in Greek. But it's interesting to, to re- be reminded of it that it was found in theater more than anywhere else. So it would be a, like a mask that an actor would put on to act out a different personality. But at the end of the play, at the end of the drama, they would take the mask off and lay it down. It wasn't who they really were. And therefore, Peter is saying there's no place for hypocrisy in Christianity. We have to be who we really are. Are we following Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in him? Well, that is what we should show. And we should show a genuine and a sincere love for our brothers and sisters. But then there's another all that he says, get rid of all slander. And this is what I find evident in many different locations. It just seems to be that whenever human beings get together in meetings or institutions or or groups or clubs or whatever the case may be, gossip, rumor, criticism often come to the fore. I want to give an illustration of it. I I remember when I was uh, a minister in a a town in, in Scotland, I joined the bowling club, the outdoor bowling club. You know, the one where you all, you're meant to dress in white uh, shirt and, and trousers and you have to wear white shoes and you've got your, your, your outside in the good weather, which isn't often the case. But once a week, I would go there. But after we were having our, our tea at the, as a break or at the end of the, the time, some people were, were very snide and, and speaking bad and, and gossiping. And I realized that it seems to be endemic. It seems to be within any group of, of human beings. And so it's very easy for us to have it in the church, but it should not be there. So all gossip, spreading rumors, uncalled for criticism, we're to peel that away, we're to throw it away. It runs in opposition to what Peter is saying Christians must live. We're to encourage. I remember uh, how amazed I was when I first used a paint product called T-Cut. I had an old Renault 5 and the paint was covered with uh, dirt and traffic film. You can imagine it. Well, the paint restorer, this product, uh, and I'm I'm not an agent for its sale, by the way, but I'm just saying that it was a very, very effective thing. It has an abrasive action that cuts into the dirt and the traffic film and removes it and basically restores the paint to almost its original condition. The results are quite remarkable. But after you use it, instead of leaving that paint to be open to the elements, you have to put a a sealant on it, a wax to, to protect it. But that's another thing. Peter's speaking about noticeable changes when God's grace enabling us 
to peel away these things. There are noticeable changes that should be evident in the Christian. So Paul speaks of putting off the carnal nature and putting on the new spiritual nature in Christ Jesus. And the same word is used by Peter for saying putting off the sins that are so damaging. And it's like taking off the dirt and smelly clothes that we would not feel comfortable and we wouldn't like to be waiting if we had a choice. These sins have no place in anyone, let alone the Christian. And all effort should be made to get rid of them, to peel them away, to to, uh, take from our experience, from our uh, living out our faith. So what would we put on instead on the fruit of God's spirit? We'd show the fruit of God's spirit, so to speak. We'd be showing that we're clothed in his righteousness. So growth comes about via that application of being obedient to what Peter is commanding, basically in God's word, to put off, to put aside all these uh, verbal, it seems to be ver- emphasizing verbal uh, interactions. But then he develops it. And this is where we come to a conclusion this evening, because he develops it by saying there is growth that comes through God's word. God's word is the means by which this radical change can occur. God's word is the means that uh, by which, having been applied by the Holy Spirit, it causes changes to come about. And he says, basically, that we are to long for, to desire the pure spiritual milk of God's word. So notice first how the Christian is described. A very clear, vivid description, like a newborn baby. Now, Peter is not necessarily implying that this is a, a recent convert, that they're re- recent converts and therefore they are immature and they need to grow up. No, that, that's not the context of this passage. The point here is, is the emphasis right at the beginning of his sentence on the word like or as. You see, in, in the language that he's using, it, it, he's doing this not to criticize, but to have an effect In other words, Peter is saying, here is a teaching illustration. This is what you are like. And we have to maybe take a moment to consider it this evening. What is a newborn baby like? If Peter is saying that this is what Christians are to be like. Well, a newborn baby. A baby makes known known its need for for food, for milk. You you don't have to ask uh, to, for, you don't need to expect a baby to put into words a, a question to their mother, when can I get fed? They cry for it. They simply cry out for their milk. It's instinctive to them. There's an inclination for them to go to their mother's breast for the milk that they need. It's instinctive. It's the way that they are made. Peter's saying we're, we're like that. He's also saying a baby, a newborn baby, it needs regular feeding, regular feeding. And when there's regular feeding, there's better resting. And all you folks that have had that privilege of uh, bringing up very young uh, babies into, into childhood and so on, you'll remember that when there was regular feeding and better resting, there's stability, there's routine, and there's steady growth. There's just so many good things attached to this. 
So you and I are to be like newborn babies that crave, that cry out, that desire pure milk. It's built into our our Christian psyche, so to speak. We we were designed to be nourished by God's word. Even Jesus spoke of this himself. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The second part of the image is most effective too. It was a common Greek term of the day. So Peter is sharing this and people know very well. But the meaning was simply this. Nothing was added to dilute the milk or to replace it. Now, some people might be tempted to water down the milk. Others might suggest, well, instead of milk, I'm going to give some fruit tea or juice. But the newborn baby needs pure milk. It's the only proper food. It's the only needed food. And the, and the word that Peter is sharing with the, his readers is saying this pure spiritual milk, this, this word of God, it, the New King James puts it, pure milk of the word. And it's useful in focusing our thoughts on what Peter is clearly trying to say. And so we see that as Christians, we must be careful to never consider, never think that we've reached a stage where we've learned enough or that we needn't learn anymore. We are likened to newborn babies because that is our permanent condition in this life. In this particular illustration, there's a constant need of spiritual nutrition. There's a constant need to consume God's word. In language, it's possible to to learn enough in a foreign language to greet people, to go into a shop and buy some things, to watch TV and maybe read a newspaper. But it all it's always obvious that it's a second language to a person. And we have many expats who come to to Lima and they try to learn Spanish and and they do they, they do quite well and they do and they do their best. But you, it's People always say, you're, you're not from here, are you? Because when they're, tr- when they're learning Spanish, they're not like a local person. Experts tell us that, well, there are maybe five different levels of language acquisition or language learning and, and getting to level three is, is tremendous. It allows you to survive and operate well in that language. Level four suggests that you could do academic work. You could go and study in some institute or university. Um, level five, however, is when you are accepted as a fluent speaker, almost as a native speaker, and people would not question that you are from that place. And what I'm saying this evening is, don't settle for a stage of faith where you're just able to get by. It's so easy for us to, to do that. I, I, I know Yes, you've trusted in Jesus. We believe that our eternal future will be spent in heaven. And Peter tells his readers and tells us, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, don't settle for less. Don't be happy with stale crumbs when there are delicious, fresh, hot bread rolls available for you every morning. I want to conclude this evening and just say, take every opportunity that you are given to soak up or consume God's word. 
One of the things we've done here at Union Church uh, has been to run a number of Ligonier courses online. I've been tremendously uh, received and people saying, I never realized that this is what the Bible was teaching. And you see transformation because God's word in its whole truth being applied to people and it transforms because God is working on the basis of his word. So I'm going to ask you uh, to take every opportunity that you have. Uh, are you are you reading books which delve deeper into your faith? Go to the Bible first, read extra books, expand your knowledge of God. Have you not tasted that the Lord is good? The psalm writer says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The one who, who trusts in him is blessed. And so for you, if you're a person who has not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, come, come now. Throw yourself on, on the mercy of God. Trust and ask for his forgiveness. Follow him. And, and remember that he has said, you will find rest for your soul. You will be satisfied. You have been hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now you are, will be filled. Continue your life following him. And so as we think of this letter that Peter writes, I want us all to consider, are we growing? Are we growing the right way? <laughs> are we reaching upwards? Are we consuming God's word, taking it in, taking every opportunity when we can to know God better? And so may God bless his word to us this evening.